We're into John 4. And uh, John 4 follows. John 3. Excellent. You're very smart. If you go back into John, John 3, there's an extended conversation with a religious leader. He's an insider. He's got his stuff together. At least it appears so on the surface. And, um, and, and there's quite an extended conversation. The guy's name is Nicodemus. We get to John chapter 4 and it's almost the exact opposite kind of person that Jesus engages with in John chapter 4. Uh, you know, you go back into John 3 and Jesus is really direct with Nicodemus. He, he thought that he had everything right, but actually it was all wrong. And so Jesus leads in with him and he says, you need to be born again. We get into John 4, there's a conversation between Jesus and a woman at a well in Samaria. Um, and it's the opposite of Nicodemus. He was a man, she's a woman. He was a Jew, she's a Samaritan. He talked with Jesus at night. She's talking with Jesus in the middle of the day at noon. He seems to have everything together and she's a mess. And what we've got here is we've got a pigeon pair of the, way, of the kind of people that Jesus speaks to. And if I can put it this way, uh, you, you might put Nicodemus down this end if it was a continuum. And you'd put this woman way down the other end. And probably all of us could fit somewhere in between there. You could come and stand somewhere in between there. You know, today, today's a day for those who can't get their crap together. If you don't mind me saying that, it's too late, I guess. But it is, right? If, you're, if you are one of those who can't get your stuff together and life has happened to you and you've been part of that, today's for you. Today's for you. So um, if you've been busted by life, if you're messy, welcome to church. <laughs> this is the best place for you. So let's, uh, let's read um, from John chapter 4. So if you've got your Bibles here, I'd love for you to open them. I'm going to read the first seven verses. Uh, you'll need to follow along. Uh, and then after that, I'll put it on the screen. And we'll just track through the conversation that Jesus has with this, uh, this lady. So John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. I'm going to make a bunch of historical notes because there's a bunch of things that just don't make sense about this story uh, unless you know some of the history behind it. And John actually flags a bunch of the history as well. John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptising more disciples than John. Now straight away, uh, many of you probably just remember, didn't we just have something like that? At the end of John chapter 3, and it's like, yes, we did. Uh, we had the whole conversation with John the Baptist about um, people coming up to him and saying, look, Jesus is baptising more people than you. And it, it's almost like in the eyes of people, there's this competition going on. All right? It's not what Jesus or John the Baptist are doing, but there's this competition going on. And who knows, humans kind of turn stuff into competitions that not, that's not necessarily a competition. Verse 2, although Jesus himself did not baptise, but only his disciples. What did Jesus do when words started get, getting around about this competition? He just taps out. Uh, you see that he left Judea and he departed again for Galilee. And we could spend a bit of time on this, but that's what humility does, right? When something becomes something that it shouldn't be, often humble people just tap out and they just go on out. And that's what Jesus does here. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, lots of people have made lots of things about the word had here. 
What does it mean that he had to pass through Samaria? Um, Well, you just need to know that Judea uh, to Galilee was about three days' walk. So let me put, I'm going to put a map up here for you. Basically, if you look at the blue line um, down the bottom there, it actually starts at Jerusalem and it ends in a village called Sychar, which is where Jesus is going to end up. Um, and, and the shortest distance was to go directly from Jerusalem to Sychar. But sometimes, if Jews had the time, because Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other, and we'll get to, get to some more of that in a minute, uh, sometimes when, uh, when Jews had more time, they would actually go way east. So if you follow that green line out before it starts going vertical, the blue line on the other side of that is the Jordan River. So sometimes to avoid the Samaritans, if the Jews had time, they would actually go across the Jordan River down the bottom and then walk up the other side to stay away from the Samaritans. They they liked each other. Um, And so here you've actually got, you've got Jesus going from Judea to Sychar about three days walk. So he arrives at a Samaritan town called Sychar um, and uh, let me just show you a picture of the ruins of Sychar, uh, just just showing again that scripture is based on historical uh, places and times and events. So if we go to verse 5 in your Bibles here, I'll just read the rest of that. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, still there today. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw Water. So what we've got here is we've got a well, and the uh, Greek word behind the uh, the English word well here actually speaks of a bubbling kind of well. So what what it actually is is not just a stagnant kind of well, but a well that's actually fed by a spring, and it is to this day. You can go and you can find Jacob's well, and it's a well, and it's fed by a spring. So Jesus arrives at this well. It's noon, the sixth hour is noon, and he sits down, and he's he's thirsty, because he's been walking for a while. And a woman from Samaria shows up. Now, you might not think that's any big deal, but back in the day, that was a big deal. It was a big deal because one one of the rules was that you weren't really supposed to be a man speaking to another woman unless her husband was there. But the bigger rule is like, he's a Jew, and she's a Samaritan, and Jews and Samaritans didn't get on. You know, you, you would put it this way. You'd go, oh, there's history between the Jews and the Samaritans. And there, and there was. It was a really long history. You go right back to 722 to 721 BC. The Assyrians capture Samaria. They deport large numbers of the Israelites. And they replace them by people from all over their empire. They brought their own gods with them. They intermarried. They added the worship of Yahweh eventually to their, uh, their gods that they had. But eventually, interestingly, the Samaritans ditched all their additional gods and they ended up only with the worship of Yahweh alone. And interestingly, like if you think about what the Jews are like, if you know anything about them, the Samaritans actually thought they were the real deal. In our day, they'd go, we are the hardcore ones. And they were such hardcore ones they, that they only actually recognised the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. Uh, and they believed they were the direct descendants, the faithful nucleus of ancient Israel. Do you see the problem? This is what the Jews were like as well. 
Now, when the Jews returned from exile in Babylon back in uh, the book of Ezra, the, this, and they start rebuilding the temple, the Samaritans go, people from Samaria said, we'll give you a hand. And the Jews said, no thanks. <laughs> we don't want your help. You know, you would think that the Jews would be happy to have someone helping them out who worships the same God, but not the case. You know, and then you've got the Samaritans refusing to worship at Jerusalem. They build their own temple on Mount Gerizim, which we'll, we'll look at in the next, uh, the next message in a, in a number of weeks' time. But in 400 BC, they, um, they build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And then 128 BC, the Jews come and sack it. <laughs> All right? It's like how to win friends and influence people, right? And then between AD 6 and 7, some Samaritans scattered some bones in the Jerusalem temple. I mean, it's, it's intense, right? It's, it's really messy. They really don't like each other. And here is this person who, in the eyes of the Jew, is a massive outsider. And Jesus strikes up a conversation with him. Now, the other thing that's strange here is, um, is she's out in the middle of the day. That wasn't normal. It wasn't normal for a woman to be out in the middle of the day getting water. We're not sure why, but uh, I want to suggest to you she's probably an outcast among outcasts. So if you get all the outcasts together, she's probably an outcast of the outcasts. She's right on the fringe. You know, we find out in this passage as we read on that she's been married five times and she's now with someone who's not her husband. It's an unlikely meeting. And what ensues is a very unusual conversation. So we're just going to go through it on screen. It's hot, it's dry, and Jesus is thirsty, so he opens up with a request. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to get Maccas. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now, this little side note from John in the brackets there is actually quite a bit more significant than what you might realise. If you go to the NIV version, the alternative translation for that part of the Greek um, is actually uh, Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. All right? That's what it is. And commentators suggest that's actually what's going on here. Now, around about the middle of the first century, you might think this is pretty harsh, but around about the middle of the first century there was a ruling by the Jewish religious people, religious leaders, and, and I quote this, the daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. Now, the Old Testament law was there was uncleanness when a woman was menstruating. Now, what are they saying here? What they're saying here is that a Samaritan woman is unclean the whole way from her birth. So you don't want to touch anything that she touches. Interesting, isn't it? Jesus answered her. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have flipped it around. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? It's... This is one of the more amusing conversations in the scriptures for me. It's like, are these people talking about the same thing? Well, they're not talking about the same thing. They're just talking past each other. 
Where do you get that living water? You're greater than our father Jacob. He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Now, Jesus is really saying to her here, if you, knew, if you knew who I was and what God's heart is toward you, you wouldn't worry about getting physical water. You'd ask me for the good stuff. You'd ask me for living water. And she just can't stop thinking about the living water that is the bubbling spring feeding Jacob's well. And, and she's saying to him, well, I don't know how you're going to get some of that stuff because you don't have any equipment. Now, according to her, she doesn't have the right equipment to get the physical water, but according to him, she doesn't have the right equipment to get the good stuff, the living water. Do you see that? Interesting irony. And then she goes on and questions his greatness by comparing him with Jacob. And he says this, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. I have to come here to draw water. <laughs> what's, what's Jesus really talking about? He's talking about who he is and what her deepest need is. She thinks it's just getting water, physical water. He's onto something far far deeper than that and she gets snagged and she just can't get past this idea of needing physical water so Jesus takes another step in and he actually dives into the place where she is spiritually thirsty says this Jesus said to her go call your husband and come here the woman answered him with a teenage answer that I discovered at school they just give you enough of the truth to kind of steer you away from what's really going on. Not all teenagers do it, but a lot of them do it. I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying you have no husband for you've had five husbands. The one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman said to him, so I perceive that you're a prophet. You see what Jesus is doing here is he's pressing in. He's pressing in on her thirst, her non-physical thirst. And what's she doing? Well, she's playing her cards very, very carefully. She's not wanting to expose too much. It was probably pretty embarrassing for her and she was pretty exposed to anyone in the community. Why would you want to talk about that stuff? But Jesus just cracks it wide open. I think it's a fascinating conversation. I want to throw a few things out um, that I think we learn from this conversation. It's not done at this point. We'll, we'll do the rest next time. Here's the first one. Uh, Jesus leans into being personal. We often get stuck in merely existing. Jesus leans into being personal. We often get stuck in merely existing. Here's the reality. Um, you know, and you could excuse her in a sense. It's like she just met this random guy at a well. <laughs> but beyond that, there's a tendency for us when life gets messy and it gets really difficult. It's like, no, we actually don't want to talk about it. We just, we just want life to go well. You know, she's a bit like us. We, we talk about stuff too. We talk about stuff we can see. We, we talk about life as we know it, as we experience it. We talk about what we think that we need. We talk about our context. We, we think, I just have to get through. I just have to survive. 
We, we don't, let's be honest, most of us don't like to drill down that much to what's really going on deep down inside of us. You know, what's going on here is I, I think she's stuck at the level of her existence, just existing and getting through. And we get stuck at the level of our existence too. She wants to talk about what makes her life go and he wants to talk about how her life is going. <laughs> you see the difference? And we can kind of end up in that place too where we just go, I, just, I can see all these things. If I just had all of these things, I'd be able to make my life go. But you just need to know that Jesus cares about you more than that. He cares about you more than just giving you the things that you feel like you need to make your life go. He's gunning for something much, much deeper. Have you ever had an experience like that with Jesus? Maybe you've listened to a sermon or you went to a, a small group and you came in and you started talking about the things that you thought were important and all of a sudden Jesus started talking to you about something else and it was something way deeper and you're kind of like, what? Well, I didn't come here to talk about that. And he goes, well, I, I, I've come to talk about it because that's really important. And, and I want to satisfy your spiritual thirst. I want to bring restoration to you. You know, there's a tendency in us sometimes to, uh, to drift into being less personal with God and not go for the really deep stuff. You know, Jesus is interested in the deepest stuff that's going on in your life. Do you believe it? He is. The stuff that you don't talk to him about. He's interested in that stuff. The messy stuff. He would have a conversation with you. He would have a long conversation with you. And he would want to talk about that stuff. And do you know you don't need to be concerned or threatened or nervous or anxious or fearful about that? Because he's good. And he brings freedom. And so if he wants to talk to you about something really deep in your life, you know what you should do? You should talk to him about it. <laughs> you should talk to him about it. You know, it's easy for us to slip into a less personal way of relating to Jesus and get concerned just with mere existence. Well, Jesus has got better plans for you than merely existing. Amen? He just does but you're going to have to be prepared to go where he wants to go. And you'll need to trust him that it's going to be good. Here's the second thing I think we see in this interchange is that Jesus is gentle with broken people. This woman's life, understatement, is not going so well. It's not going so well. She doesn't have it together. Even with the prevalence of divorce in our day, her situation is pretty intense. She'd been married five times and was now in a de facto relationship. And you might ask the question, why has she been married five times? Well, we aren't told. I think it's pretty unlikely that uh, five died, all right? If they did, the fourth and fifth guy would be pretty worried, right? <laughs> it's like three husbands have died on your watch. Like I'm a goner. It's just a matter of time. But jokes aside... It doesn't really matter whether a bunch of her husbands died or whether she was divorced. Like, just stop for a moment and just think about the grief. Think about the messy, messiness of it. Imagine 
being divorced five times and now being in a de facto relationship. So it doesn't matter how you slice it. It doesn't matter how you look at it. The reality is that this woman, at the core of who she is, is a broken, thirsty soul. That's what she is. Completely different to Nicodemus. He was thirsty, he just didn't know he was thirsty. And I want you to see something about the way that Jesus engages with this woman because it's really precious because it's, and it's really different to Nicodemus. So let me give you the first three interactions with Nicodemus and the first three interactions with the woman. Ready? John 3, first thing Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, you've got it all wrong. Unless you get born again, you won't see the kingdom of God. What does she say to uh, the woman? Give me a drink. Can you help me? Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, you didn't hear me last time, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What does he say to the second thing he says to the woman? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have, been, would have given you living water. Third interaction with Nicodemus. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Third interaction with the woman. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, dot, dot, dot. Do you see the difference? Massive difference. It reminds me of the messianic prophecy of Jesus. Matthew twelve twenty: a bruised reed he will not break and a smouldering wick he will not quench. This woman is a bruised reed. This woman is a smouldering wick. And Jesus neither broke her nor snuffed her out. Isn't it beautiful? It's really beautiful. And you know, some of you need to hear this because some of you are bruised reeds. You're smouldering wicks. It's like, I'm almost out. Well, you just need to know that Jesus is not going to come at you the way that he came at Nicodemus. He won't. But I tell you something, if you're religious and you're proud, he probably will. (laughs) He probably will. If you think you have everything together, expect Jesus to be direct with you. If you know you're broken, expect him to be gentle. It's just how it works. The beautiful thing about watching Jesus interact with people is you see so many different people and the way that he adapts and engages with people differently based on what they need. Three, disconnection from God leads to deep spiritual thirst. This is something else you see here. It's the way it works. You know, all the way through this conversation, Jesus is offering this woman living water and she can't get past physical water. She was well attuned to her physical thirst, but much less well attuned to the thirst in her soul. Now to us, it seems pretty obvious, right? You're looking, you just go, okay, married five times and in a de facto, that would tell you something. But don't be too quick to be critical. We can be a little bit like this too. You know, life, who knows life can be like a pinball machine. You just bounce from one thing to the next. Don't drill down any deeper. Like I was mentioning earlier, we just want things to go the way we want them to go. We take sips of different things around the place hoping that they're going to satisfy us, but they're salty water and they just make us thirstier and thirstier. Now, the reality is that we too are the people 
who drink from wells that make us go crazy and make us thirstier and thirstier. One of my favourite quotes is out of Kung Fu Panda 2. It's, it's, the, there's a bad guy, Peacock, and a, and, and a sheep, a prophetic sheep. It's Kung Fu Panda after all. And the prophetic sheep says to the bad guy, Peacock, the cup you choose to fill has no bottom. And isn't that true of us? We just get after things that we think are going to quench our thirst, but they don't. They just make us thirstier and thirstier. And a number of years ago, I, um, I had a bit of a crack at the idea in the church that thirst is a really good thing. Now, if you look in the Old Testament, um, thirst is not a good thing. Thirst is actually a curse in the Old Testament. Thirst, in a sense, is a good thing when it leads us to a, a thirst for God. But thirst, biblically, is a sign that someone's being disconnected from God. Well, they are disconnected from God. So now I remember the song, As a Deer Pants for the Water. Remember that one? That's actually a lament from Psalm 42 about being disconnected from God. So if you're really, really spiritually thirsty, it's a bad sign. <laughs> it's, it's good that you actually would be thirsty and go to Jesus for that satisfaction, but it's actually a sign that you're disconnected from him. This is the way Jeremiah puts it. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Do you see that? That's what John's talking about in John 4. And hewed out systems for themselves, broken systems that can hold no water. What had this woman done? Well, she'd done what Jeremiah said people do. They dig their own cisterns. If at best, stagnant water or worst, they're broken cisterns and the water doesn't hold in it. In contrast, the living water. You see, when you disconnect from the living water, who is? God, it's Jesus. What happens? Well, you die. <laughs> That's what happens. You get really thirsty and you die. It always happens like that. She knew about the effect of her thirst. She just didn't know how, how deeply Jesus was the satisfaction of it. And this is how it always is when humanity disconnects from God. We know the thirst that's inside of us, but we don't always know how much Jesus can actually satisfy us. Number four, the living water we most deeply long for and need is God himself. Let's have a quick look again at what Jesus says about living water. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Just slow down for a minute on this one. Let's look at that top one there. Firstly, you can't get living water unless it's given to you. You can't buy it. It's very, very precious, but it's a gift. It has to be given to you. It isn't cheap. It's given. And who gives it? Well, you can see there in verse 10, it's Jesus who gives it. And so you might ask the question, what is this living water? What is this living water? Well, you know what the living water is? Is this new life. It's life. It's cleansing. It's purification. 
It's knowing God. It's the transforming presence of God in your life. It's God himself. It's all over the Old Testament. Jeremiah again, Jeremiah 17, 13. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth. They have forsaken the law, the fountain of living water. You see, you're meant to look through physical water to see the living water behind it. If she wants living water, she needs to get Jesus. That's what she needs. But it's going to come down to whether she actually wants Jesus. And it does that, it does for you also. It's beautiful prophecy from Isaiah 55. Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, how would you do that? You're supposed to buy it. How do you buy it? Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labour for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. This woman is thirsty for Jesus. She just didn't know it. And we all are. And the question I would ask all of us today, myself included, is are we... Are we still busy digging cisterns for ourselves? Broken cisterns that can't hold water? Are we, are you done with drinking salt water yet? (laughs) You know, whenever we disconnect from Jesus in an ultimate sense, but also in a moment-by-moment sense, we thirst. And you can shove all sorts of things in there to satisfy it. But here's here's the reality. Anyone who's come to faith in Christ knows this. Nothing fills the hole deep down in our souls like Jesus does. Amen? But we can still flip out and start drinking salt water again sometimes, don't we? And dig some cisterns to hold it. Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist, wrote this. I may, I suppose, regard myself or pass for being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the streets. That's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of the inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, may partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated for me to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfilment. Yet I say to you, listen to Muggeridge, very famous British journalist, And I beg you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by a million, add them all together and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draft of that living water Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty, irrespective of who or what they are. Anyway, give an amen to that. He's right, isn't he? Even if you're busy now, you're a Christian and you're busy and you're off getting some drink of salty water somewhere, you still know that. That's what happened in the first place when you came to faith. You got this taste, this living water and you just went, there is nothing. I've never had anything like that. Number five, God 
powerfully quenches our thirst. You know, this is huge. Because you might actually assume um, yourself, you might go, oh, what does Jesus do? Does he get rid of it? Does he get, just get rid of our thirst? No, he doesn't. He quenches it. He satisfies it. This is what Jesus is selling, saying here. And it's, you see the whole way through Scripture. Isaiah 44.3, For I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I'll pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 49.10, They shall not hunger or thirst, nor the scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them. And by springs of water he will guide them. Matthew 5 verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. John 4, 13 to 14, whoever, this is what we looked at today, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know, the Greek word behind welling up there, you know what it means? It means welling up, leaping up, bounding forward. It's got life about it. You know, one of the things that Jesus is saying is you come and you drink a deep drink of the living water and God gives you his Holy Spirit to live inside of you. And this thing just wells up inside of you. It's not that you just get your thirst quenched. (laughs) You become a thirst quencher. You see that? It's not just enough for you. It's, It's enough for people around you. Now, I want to challenge you this morning. How big is your, is your vision for your life? Your vision for your kids? Do you see yourself, if you love Jesus, do you see yourself as having the spirit and there's living water just welling up inside of you and you watering all these people around you by the presence of the spirit in you? That's the kind of life that is normal for God's people. You know, you getting your thirst quenched isn't just about you. It's about everyone else too. How are you giving them Jesus? Who's thirsty around you? Who who do you see at work? Who do you see in your street and you just go, they are thirsty. And they don't know it, but they're thirsty for Jesus. And actually, I have him. (laughs) I have him in me. Does the living water flow out of you and quench the thirst of others? And here's where I want to end. I'm going to end on six. We'll come back to this in, uh, in a number of weeks' time. But here's, here's where we're going to end today. Jesus' thirst leads to the quenching of our thirst. I want you to think about the the woman. Yeah, I, I think God's sovereign and he does he does what's right and good and always accomplishes the things that he wants to. But just hang with me for a moment, just at a physical level. If Jesus wasn't thirsty, the woman who gets her thirst quenched, we'll find out in the rest of the passage, would never have had her thirst quenched. Do you see that? If he wasn't thirsty, he doesn't have the conversation with her. She doesn't get her thirst quenched. 
And when you go to the cross, it's the same for us. This is John 19 where Jesus had been crucified. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture. Everyone read it? I thirst. You know what? If he didn't go to the cross, if he didn't thirst on the cross, you would never get your spiritual thirst quenched. You would be destined for the rest of your days to create broken cisterns that don't hold water. You'd be destined to drinking salt water. He went to the cross and he went without so that you wouldn't go without. So that you would get the good stuff. Let me read the rest. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit.